And um, if you're visiting again, I want to say welcome. It's very, very good to have you here. And uh, especially if this is your first time or two, we want to say we're very honored to have you here. And this summer, what we're doing is the summer there's just a lot of coming and going and it's hard to develop a series. And in our church, we like to preach through books of the Bible or maybe through a section of the Bible to just let there be that continuity. So what we're doing this summer is just uh, looking at some different psalms. There's a collection of 150 of these right in the middle of the Bible, and so we're kind of skipping here and there. And uh, this morning we're in Psalm 67, and if you, if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the order of worship there. Um, you know, when uh, Mark alluded to this when, when, uh, when he prayed that we've had quite a few children born in our church recently and just in the last few years, and uh, we've seen a lot of baptism of children even just in the last few months up front. And one of the things that when parents present a child for baptism that they promise to do, vow to do, this is a good, good reminder, is that parents promise to pray with and for their children. And I know from experience as a father of three that uh, that, that can really go neglected. Now, again, I'm not making an assumption that everybody in the room is a parent or even is a Christian. But for those who are parents and are professing Christians, that's something that you usually mean to do and sometimes look up and you haven't done much of it. But if there is a place where families typically find some little niche to pray together, it's at meals, if they're able to have meals together. And, um, and you may have a... If you do this, you may have a family prayer, just sort of a, something you heard someone else pray or kind of a default language that you use. But one thing that's prayed a lot is, uh, Lord, bless this food to nourish us. And that's a good thing to pray. I mean, that even resonates with certain scriptures about food and, and God's provision. I want us to think, though, about, all right, so let's say he does that, which I think a lot of the time he does. He provides for us a lot, and he does nourish us. And most people here are pretty healthy compared to other people globally. Um, so if he does bless the food, and by the way, I, I know I, I just harp on this. We, we say thanks for food. We don't say a blessing. And, and as I've said many times, if I'm ever eating with you and you ask me to bless the food, I will always do the same thing. I'll make a wizard-like motion with my hands and go, Zzz. All right, so if we thank God for the food and we ask Him to bless it and nourish us, if He does, so then so what? What do we do with that? We're just coming off the 4th of July. And again, I'm not assuming this about everyone in the room, but you did hear a lot of talk and celebration, especially in churches, about bless the United States. Uh, God bless the USA. And that's even kind of a, you know, it's kind of a saying of ours. And I think that is right and good to want that and to pray for that. So let's say he does. And it's not that we're the end-all, be-all, but I think in, in a lot of ways he definitely does. So if he answers that prayer and that desire and he blesses the United States, then so what? Like, why? Why? Think about this. Not too long from now, at the end of our worship service, we're going to do a very ancient practice. I mean, most of the components of our worship service, I'd say all of them, are ancient practices of the people of God. They're even older than the, old, than the New Testament. They go back to even Jewish worship. 
And the way we'll end is something that is thousands of years old. This is something that God taught the first high priest, Aaron, Moses' brother, to do. And he even gave him these particular words, and it's my favorite one to use. It's the benediction. And, and this is a blessing, but the blessing is not coming from the power of the person saying it. It's not coming from the pastor. But it's God pronouncing, excuse me, it's the pastor pronouncing on God's behalf His blessing. And here's the words that God gave to Aaron. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. Now, the end of our worship service today is how this psalm begins. It explicitly begins with an allusion, almost a direct quote from that blessing. And the psalmist is saying this, God bless us. Bless your people. But the reason this psalm is extremely helpful, if we will listen, is that the psalmist is going to tell us, bless us, but why? If and when you do that, what is it for? Let's look at Psalm 67. I'm going to mention this before I read this psalm because this has already come up and I, and I haven't mentioned this. You'll see this term Selah in the psalms and we keep that in Hebrew because we don't know what it means. But it's part of the psalm and apparently it means something like uh, stop and think about what you just heard. So as we come to these, I will give it a pause when I come to Selah. I won't read it, I'll just pause. Psalm 67, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us that Your way may be known on earth, Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that whatever it means to be blessed by You, we're not even sure how to define it, except we know that that is something that is desirable, that if we have that, we have everything. We ask for it, but we ask that it will be blessing as You define it. And Father, we ask that part of that might even be right now through our distractions or fatigue or indifference or sadness or loneliness or need that we would hear you very clearly and these things would land in our very heart of hearts and we ask this we ask it with empty hands in Jesus' name Amen this, uh, this past week I had the privilege of uh, teaching at a high school conference down in Florida in fact we've got one young man that was, uh, that was there from Anderson that's uh, here with us in worship and uh, I, something I found myself saying 
at least a couple of times this past week to... Because I'm, I'm looking out on this big room, hundreds of teenagers, and something that I found myself saying, and I felt old when I said it, but it's, it's appropriate, is I want you to do better than me. I just... I, in other words, we would be talking about something or making an application, and I found myself saying, I want you to, to not only see this, but get it in your bones earlier than I did. I want you to do better than me. And that actually came to my mind again standing up before you this morning because, as I have mentioned before, in my own life, and, and I never share anything out of my own life to say this is the gold standard or this is the way it ought to be. I'm just saying in my own experience, I grew up in the church. I grew up around these things, the Bible and biblical teaching. But as far as I can see, I did not become a Christian until I was in 10th grade. And that whatever Jesus meant when he would be talking to a, a crowd and say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Whatever that means to receive ears to hear, I think I, God gave them to me fall of 10th grade, as best I can tell. And the rest of 10th grade and then the rest of high school and the beginning of college... You know, certainly they weren't problem-free, but they were extremely rich years in my life. And this book that I had grown up around that really, if I was, I wouldn't say it out loud, but if I was honest, it bored me to tears, just began to jump off the page. And so I started reading through it, not getting all this stuff secondhand, but directly, and learning what it meant, and learning how to pray and learning how to worship. I'd been in church my whole life, but learning how to worship, all these things. And it was a rich time, but it wasn't until my sophomore year, so let's say, you know, yeah, it was about four years, that uh, someone in my life, an older person, challenged me. And when they challenged me about my life, it, it actually made me cry. In fact, he and I are still friends, and we call this our movie moment. We're standing outside of a one of my buildings about to go into class. It's raining. It's very dramatic, and I'm crying, and it's kind of our movie moment. But I cried because I, what he said convicted me. And what he said was, this is not a quote, but this is the gist of it. Okay, hey, it's great that you're reading your Bible. It's great. It's great that maybe you're reading your Bible, maybe more than lots and lots of your peers. But why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? It's great that maybe you'll get up early and when everybody else in your dorm is asleep, you'll go off somewhere by yourself to, to pray. Great. But why are you doing that? What is the end game? Why are you reading these Christian books and soaking them up and taking notes and underlining stuff? Great that you're doing that. But why? What is the end game? And it just cut into my heart because I did not know. And when I began to look at it, I wasn't sure what the answer is. Is it so that if there's a bunch of my friends or a bunch of college people sitting around and we're talking about deep issues, kind of late-night discussions about what does this all mean, that I'll have the coolest things to say? I'll be more insightful or I'll know more about what the Bible says about that question you just asked than anybody? Is that the end game for the church and the prayer and the reading? Uh, really, do, do you just want a cute Christian girl to think you're neat? Is that... I mean, what is it? And in a sense, this, you know, God put that person in my life. They put... He put His finger 
on something. You're seeking God outwardly, and you're doing good things, and you want to be blessed by Him. You want God to work in your life. But as He is doing that, because evidently He is, what do you do with it? What do you do with the blessing of the truths of God's Word, the blessings of Him answering prayers, the blessings of fellowship? What do you do with it? And that, that dovetails directly into this psalm. Because the psalm, this is such a good provision of God. This is not the only place that talks about this by far, but it's just very clear. The psalmist is saying, God, give us that thing that Aaron pronounced when he pronounced the benediction. Bless us and keep us and be gracious to us and make your face just shine on us unto something. What is the unto? It is unto, it's twofold, that your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. In some ways, those are just two ways of saying the same thing. But I want to look at, at both of those statements. God blesses us. God blesses His people that His way may be known <clears throat> excuse me, on earth. His saving power among all nations. All right, first, what does it mean that He blesses us that everyone on earth may know His way? If you look in this psalm, there are terms that that keep repeating themselves. One word that shows up multiple times is us. When the psalmist says us, who does he mean? He means the people of God, the children of Abraham. But the other word he keeps using is the peoples, and that's not a typo. It's plural, the peoples. What does that mean? Now, this will actually not only help you understand Psalm 67, this will help you understand the Psalms, it will help you understand the Bible. That term, the peoples, means everyone who is not yet the people, singular. All these different ethnicities, all these different nations, all these different clans and tribes and people groups, they are the peoples. And until they look to God for mercy, they remain the peoples. If you come to this God who made everybody and offers mercy, you become part of the people. Now, when, when the psalmist says this, these are very good instincts, but the, here's, the, here's the deal. Much like the Christian church, and that's going to be important in a second, much like the Christian church, Israel was not known for being what we might call uh, outwardly faced. It was not known for being outgrown. It was known for being ingrown. So where did the psalmist get these good instincts to say, I want you to bless us, but not so that we can just sit and just sit around the big pot of blessing and go, awesome, we're blessed. But I want you to bless us that we might be a blessing to the ends of the earth. Where did he get that? And it goes all the way back to when these different people became the people of God. When did the people of God become the people of God? Genesis chapter 12, God comes to this guy named Abram for no merit, no, nothing he earned, no deserving on his part. God comes to this guy named Abram and he says, I'm going to bless you. In fact, I mean, to paraphrase, he says, I'm going to make you the standard of what being blessed by God looks like. 
Then he says this, And through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. In other words, this is something that was in the very DNA of what it is to know God and to be counted among His people. Now, let me ask you this. When we think about what does the world most need, what does the world most need? Even though we might know sort of the Bible thing we're supposed to say or the theologically correct thing we're supposed to say, I'd say really deep down our answer would be to meet physical needs. To meet physical needs. Shelter, food, clothing, medicine, child, whatever. Very tangible, real. Then we will deal with spiritual concerns. The most loving person, the most loving person who ever lived, when his disciples came up to him one day and said, you know, uh, the disciples of John the Baptist, they, they were taught by him how to pray. You haven't taught us to pray. You know, Jesus, you clearly don't do enough for us. Would you teach us how to pray? And so when the most loving man who ever lived said, here's how you pray for yourself and the world, What's the first petition? Our Father, you who are in heaven, may your name be hallowed. But the most important thing for us, the most important thing for the world, is that God be seen for who He is and worshipped accordingly. That is the number one thing that we need, and it's the number one thing that the world needs. Uh, A pastor and writer pretty well known named John Piper wrote a book about taking the gospel around the world, and the name of the book is Let the Nations Be Glad, which is a quote from Psalm 67. And the first three sentences of this book are, are right on. He says this, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship does not. And why does he say that? It means this, that the reason that, whether you're talking in the Old Testament era or the New Testament era, the reason we want the ends of the earth to be blessed is not, we're going to get you to act like us. Our way of acting is better than your way of acting. So we're going to get in an argument, and our way of life is going to beat your way of life. That is not it. It's to say, we all need God's mercy. And what that mercy can look like is that finally, instead of worshiping myself, or worshiping my tradition, or worshiping my stuff, that finally... My heart is cleansed and set free to worship what my heart really desires. And that is the God who created heaven and earth. And the reason that taking that message around the world is a valid endeavor and urgent is because all over the world there are these massive swaths of places where that worship doesn't exist yet. I was thinking about uh, our parking lot. Our parking lot, let's just go ahead and say it, is not a pretty parking lot. Can we all just say that? Some have called it an abomination. It, it may actually show up in, in some Old Testament prophecies. We're, we're not sure. But it's, it's not an attractive parking lot yet. Yet. 
And if you're visiting, let me say this. I, I don't even normally talk about our building that much, and this is not some big capital campaign thing that we're in, okay? So just say that on the front end. But I was, but I was thinking about, all right, we as a church have said we want to do things well. You know, we want, we want to do things as a church with excellence. And we don't want to just start projects or start things until we think we can do them well. All right, so that's an area that eventually we need to address. But why do we want to address it? And we could say there are second-tier concerns and there are first-tier concerns. The second tier would be, well, right now we don't even have this luxury, you know, of stripes. And so what, it would be great to just have this uniform paving and striping so that we more efficiently get as many cars as we can in here safely and all that. Okay, so that would be great. It would be more practical. But also, hey, we have said as a church that we want to be a blessing to the city. And this is increasingly becoming a busy corner of the downtown. The city is actually glad that we're here and we're a stable presence. And we would love for it to be attractive and it not to be, you know, we'd like vegetation other than weeds, you know, so we could have, I don't know, you know, monkey grass and crepe myrtles and all this good parking lot vegetation. And it could be attractive and the people that come through there could go, wow, that looks so much better, looks better than it's looked in decades. Those are all good concerns. Those are second tier. What is the first tier reason for redoing our parking lot? The first tier reason is, to re, is just to remove any little impediments to anyone being able to come here of their own initiative or at your invitation to come in here and find out that on the one hand, God is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. He always has been that way and He always will be. And that God is just. The fact that He is abounding in love and faithfulness does not mean that therefore all humanity gets a pass for rebellion. I mean, the psalm itself says a very strange thing, if, if you noticed it, if you had your thinking cap on. You're saying, I want people to worship you. I want all the nations to sing to you. I want, all the, peop- I want the nations to be glad and joyful and happy and lift you up and praise you and sing to you. I want them to sing about you judging the nations with equity. Could we stop and think about that? What is equity? Fairness. Can you sing about God being fair? Is that insanity? Say, God, let's get as many people globally together as possible to find out that you will judge the nations with fairness. And Jesus said, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What if God didn't even use His law to be fair with us? What if He just said, all right, what's important to you? What, what makes you angry at other people when they violate some standard that's important to you? I'm going to take that standard and apply it to your life. You hate hypocrites? I will look at your life and test it for consistency. Do we want fairness? This leads to the second thing. We want people to know God's way. So loving. He's so just. Great mercy. Great wrath. We want everyone everywhere to know His saving power. We want everybody everywhere to know He's not just this force 
But he is this personal God with all this love and all this hatred of sin. And the reason you can worship him and one day stand before a God who judges the nations with fairness and be able to sing, not just then, but sing now, is because he has a salvation that he gives. This comes up over and over and over when we're in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, that sometimes a writer in Scripture, the writers will say more than even they knew. And that what, what they're writing or saying is true, but there's even more in there than they realize. When the psalmist writes, I want everyone to know your saving power, in Hebrew, guess what the psalmist said? Think about it this way. We use the word Jesus. Jesus is an English rendering of a Greek rendering of a Hebrew word. Jesus is our English version of the Greek name Iesus. Iesus is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew word Yeshua. And if you could have been in Nazareth in the first century and you would have heard Mary walking outside to call the Son of God to supper, she would not have been going, Jesus! She wouldn't be going, Iesus! She would have been saying, Yeshua, that was his name. Did the psalmist writing this know, yes, one day God will become a man centuries from now and he'll be named Yeshua? No. But isn't it amazing that what God moves the psalmist to say is, I want everybody around the world to know your ways, God. I want all the nations to know your Yeshua. Why? Why? Why do I want them to know your saving power? Uh, I, don't, I may have read this before. I can't remember. In the, in the early to mid-1800s, the seminary in the United States to go to, if you wanted the goods, was Princeton Seminary. And the, the, the famous theological instructor in the early 1800s at Princeton Seminary was a guy named Charles Hodge got some of his books on my shelf. Charles Hodge and Sarah Hodge had several children. Uh, one was a son named Archibald Alexander Hodge. Now, Archibald Alexander was another professor. He didn't just pull that out of the blue. Well, uh, along with being this incredibly rich academic place, Princeton Seminary sent students all over the world. A good many of them never came back not because they retired there, but because they were killed. It's a huge sending school. And there was this one young man named uh, James Eckerd. And right after he graduated, he, was going, he uh, was going to Ceylon, what we now call Sri Lanka. And so Charles Hodge's son, Archibald Alexander, and his sister Mary Elizabeth Hodge, they found out about James Eckerd going to what we call Sri Lanka. And they sent a letter with him. Now... I'm going to read this letter to you. They're going to use a word. This word we use when we name call. To him, this is just a category. The word is heathen. Now, we use the word heathen like you see footage of Mardi Gras and go, ooh, the heathen, you know. It's not derogatory. This is a, a, in the early 1800s, that would have been a word you use about the people around the world who don't know the God of the Bible. All right. 
Ten-year-old boy writes this letter, sends it with James Eckerd, and it's addressed to the heathen. Because he's been told that guy's going to teach the heathen in Ceylon. Here's the letter. Dear heathen, the Lord Jesus Christ hath promised that the time shall come when all the ends of the earth shall be his kingdom. And God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. And if this was promised by a being who cannot lie, why do you not help it to come sooner by reading the Bible and attending to the words of your teachers and loving God and renouncing your idols? Take Christianity into your temples. And soon there will not be a nation, no, not a space of ground as large as a footstep that will want a missionary. My sister and myself have, by small self-denials, procured two dollars, which are enclosed in this letter to buy tracts and Bibles to teach you. Signed, Archibald Alexander Hodge and Mary Elizabeth Hodge, Friends of the Heathen. And just out of curiosity, I got on a couple of websites where you can calculate what, you know, what would this amount of dollars in a previous year be worth in today's dollars. $2 in 1833, which is when that letter was written, would be about 50 now. So you've got a 10-year-old boy and his sister writing that letter and sending the equivalent today of 50 bucks saying, you take this and we really want you to buy Bibles with it and worship this God and become Christians. Now, the sort of crummy guilt trip preacher judo move at this point is to say what? Is to say, now friends, if a 10-year-old boy just, you can just fill in the blank from there. I mean, just, you know, just the guilt trip. But that would not move us. I mean, we would nod, and then we'd go to lunch, and it would just wash off us. The question is, why did a 10-year-old boy and his little sister give the equivalent of 50 bucks and write that letter and say, we are your friends. We want you to become Christians. And I'd never noticed this till I went back and, and read this. It was what Archibald Alexander Hodge said about his dad when he grew up and reflected on what it was like growing up in his dad's house. Um, he's describing his father, Charles Hodge. He said, he prayed for us at family prayers and singly. Prayed as a group, prayed one-on-one. And taught us to pray at his knees with such soul-felt tenderness that however bad we were, our hearts all melted to his touch. Let's back it up one more. Why was Charles Hodge so tenderizing? If you read his life and you read what he wrote and you read what he did, it becomes evident that he thought Jesus was wonderful. He taught over 50 straight years at the same school and sent thousands of men into the United States and around the world, literally around the world, some never returning, and he instilled in them, it is worth it because Jesus is awesome. He's awesome for anybody. And if you're 10 years old and you act up and you're bad, he is wonderful for you. And a 10-year-old did the math that, man, 
He's wonderful for everybody. He wasn't just this sweet little 10-year-old. Maybe he was. But he did the math that if he's wonderful for us, he's wonderful for everybody. So here's the question for us. Has that touched the whole of our being? Guilt trips about, are you giving enough to missions? Do you pray for missionaries? Are you willing to live your, leave your comfortable American life and go to, you know, insert uncomfortable foreign land? The Congo, the Ivory Coast, Uzbekistan. I, I don't know. Something exotic. That just, it just typically does not move anyone in any way that really helps. Jesus said, he who has been forgiven little... Loves little. And what will get us to a point where we say, Man, I wish more people knew Jesus. Man, I, I wish more people loved God and worshipped Him, knew Jesus and sat at His feet and knew they were cleansed, is if that has grabbed us. I mean, the question is, do we, as a room full of people, have a felt sense that if God judged us with equity, that would look like hell? I don't know how else to say it, except to remind us that the most loving man who ever lived was always the most forthcoming about that word, that awkward word. But if it has grabbed us that, man, God could have just given me what I what would be fair. And he had mercy on me, and now I can sing to him. I love him. But why do we love him? Because he first loved us. If that gets in our bones, what should we do with it? I, I want to throw out three things. This is not exhaustive, this is just a few. Number one. We need to ask ourselves this morning, is there someone in Greenville that I'm pretty confident does not really know God or want to know God or know Jesus savingly or want Him? Is there someone whom I love and pray for? and pursue. And when I say pursue, I don't mean as a project, like, I'm going to be nice to you so you'll come to my church. That has been tried and appropriately is a train wreck. But to love that person as a person and to go to bat for that person, to love them and call them and text them and check in on them. I don't mean suffocate them, but be involved in their life. Have meals with them. Go to bat for that person on your knees. Cry the tears for that person that he or she will not cry for their own souls. Because if there's not one person like that in our lives in Greenville, what that means is that this is an an abstraction. It is an abstraction. That what has happened in our lives is there's this river of mercy going all the way through redemptive history and somehow that river came to me and I have made the executive decision to be a dam. And we will pool it up in this reservoir and that reservoir will be for the people that I like and the Christians I already know. And uh, for those of you downstream, I guess God is sovereign and He'll work it out. If that's us... Can we call that what that is? That is evil. 
and repent. And say, Lord, put that person on my heart and remind me to just love them because they are my neighbor. When this psalmist says the peoples, we think of peoples as being people on other continents. We are the other continent from the psalmist's perspective. Second thing is this. There will be a list when you leave the sanctuary, an updated list of the missionaries that our church supports. Now, this is more for members than for visitors. I would invite anybody to pick one up. But for those of you who are members, these are our folks. We take your money, which is our money, which is the Lord's money, and we give a chunk of it to them so that people will know God's way and His saving power. Will you pray for them? Will you find them on Facebook or write them or Skype and let them know that we're for them? Will you give them more than we're already giving them to, to be freed to do this so that we can have more people that do this? The third thing is this. It is always a good prayer to pray what Isaiah said when he saw God and it terrified him. And then God soothed his fears by assuring him that he had taken away his sins. As soon as that happened, God said, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. Immediate response. Your calling may be to stay in Greenville till you die. But do not assume that the person who pulls up stakes and goes to another city, another state, another nation, always has to be someone else. It may be that this is what you are called to do. And Jesus said, no one has left family or friends or field for my name's sake who won't receive as much in this life and in the life to come a hundredfold. I'm going to end with this. Um, in, uh, I think it was 1970, there was a player for the Chicago Bears named Brian Piccolo who uh, died of cancer. He only played maybe, I think, four seasons, three or four seasons. And uh, when he died, a movie came out the next year called Brian's Song. And this just killer scene at the end is where um, Billy D. Williams is playing his teammate, Gail Sayers. This is in the pre-Lando Calrissian um, era of his acting career. And uh, Billy D. Williams is playing Gail Sayers, and he's receiving this uh, the Most Courageous Player Award for the Chicago Bears. And he stands up at this awards banquet, and he says... Uh, this award is mine tonight. Tomorrow, it's Brian Piccolo's. He's going to take it to the hospital and give it to him. And then he says this. I love Brian Piccolo. And I want all of you to love him too. That is Psalm 67. That is gospel ministry, whether it is in the downtown or Sri Lanka. 
I love the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because He first loved me for no apparent reason. I love the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I love His salvation. I love His Yeshua. And I want everybody else to. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, for all the ways that we have not been a conduit of the knowledge of You, the knowledge of Your Jesus, and all the ways that we have not loved our neighbor, pursued them, um, inconvenienced ourselves for them, we do ask Your mercy. And You've assured us of Your, your pardon. You've assured us of forgiveness. But we pray that all the more that would make us want it for the whole world. Father, right now, we would pray for the nation that's commonly regarded as the most hostile, the most closed to the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we pray this before we come to your, your table. Oh, Father, let the North Koreans praise you, O oh God. Let all the North Koreans praise you. Let the North Koreans all be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Father, let the North Koreans praise you, O oh God. Let all the peoples praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.